Aloha everyone, I'm your host, Christina Laney Mitri, and welcome to Smart Living Hawaii's podcast, where we discuss smart homes and technology, sustainability, healthy lifestyles, and smart business. Today we'll have a talk story with Matt Lynch, the Director of Sustainability Initiatives at the University of Hawaii. There are so many directions I could take this podcast because Matt is truly a wealth of knowledge and knows a lot about all the different sectors of sustainability due to his past experiences. So what we are going to do first to start is I'm going to tackle his bio here. So what we have, Matthew has worked in a broad range of community-based sustainable development projects from Laos to Mongolia from building rural community resilience through farm, farmer training to sustainable economic development to catalyzing institutional change through policy work and collaborative leadership. Matt's talents for energizing communities and individuals has rehumanized urban and institutional systems in the developing and developed worlds and works towards restoring and regenerating the ecological systems upon which these social systems depend. So he is doing amazing work at the university. So we will definitely be discussing schooling for the world of sustainability, perhaps touch a little bit on Hawaii green growth, farming and agriculture, and permaculture. This is a lot to cover in under an hour, and we'll see how far we get on this talk story. So let's get started. Matt, dive in. I guess, give me your background. Wow. Well, thanks so much for that uh, glowing introduction, <laughs> Christina. <laughs> thanks for your interest in having me on the, on the podcast. Um, so you're wanting to know my pathway into sustainability? Sure. I guess. Let's go there. Sure. Um, so uh, it's a long and sordid tale, so I'll give you the abbreviated version. <laughs> um, in my uh, 20s, um, I was a very different person, and I was very focused on... Um, amassing, learning how to uh, amass financial wealth <laughs> for myself. So by age 20, I managed to land a job at Bank of America, and I worked uh, in the mortgage bank there, and I connected with the private bank, which was serving the wealthiest clients of B of A. Um, and long story short, that led to a 10-year career in mortgage banking and real estate finance, um, which led to me working for smaller regional finance companies and eventually starting my own firm, uh, here in Honolulu that was focused on debt management and asset management. Um, and uh, in and around, um, I, I was also experimenting with what I was learning from wealthy clients, um, adapting those principles into my own life. So I was also starting to acquire and amass a modest real estate portfolio here and managed to, uh, by age 29, um, build a net worth of more than a million dollars, and then by age 31, I managed to lose it all, <laughs> which is another story for another time. Um, best told, uh, probably at a bar. <laughs> um, but that was in and around 2008, 2009, with the global financial crisis, um, and so that was my sort of rude introduction to sustainability as I was really searching for deeper meaning and really. Um, I actually left the islands and went back to my second home in Australia, which is my dad is Aussie. So moved back home, broken penniless at 31 in search of what was next for me. Um, and Australia is a fascinating place, a very harsh continent. So is that where you grew up or you grew actually, up here? I was born and raised here in Kaneohe, right on the bay. 
Uh, but when I was nine, we moved to Australia. Oh, okay. And I was mad at my dad for years because uh, my family in Australia is from Melbourne, which is not the hot, dry, tropical part. It's the temperate, cold, <laughs> oh. <laughs> southern, southern part of Australia. And so local boy growing up in shorts and slippers, moving in the middle of the Melbourne winter, I was, I was upset. <laughs> um, but by age 19, I moved back. Um, to Hawaii, and then by age 20, was working for B of A. Um, but so at, and at age 31, I'm back broke and penniless in Melbourne, Australia, uh, which at the time had a digital display at what's the equivalent of Central Station in Melbourne, the city of Melbourne. Okay. It had a readout, it was like a percentage number, 22.1%. 20.9, 20.7. It would be updated daily. And this percentage was the percentage of water left in the city's aquifer. Oh, okay. Because at that time, Australia was nearing the end. We didn't know that they were nearing the end. They were in the midst of this massive nine-year drought um, that finally broke in year 10 with a rain event that was literally the equivalent of it raining in, say, Oregon so much that all the dry lake beds in California filled up. Wow. It was just like massive sort of precipitation event. Um, but that was because Australians were facing, farmers were facing these really challenging conditions. Hmm. They were going through this really intense period of innovation because they're just trying to figure out how to survive. Um, and so I kind of stepped into that and got really interested in food systems and more specifically was introduced to permaculture, which you brought up, uh, which is um, the word permaculture itself is made up of two words, permanent and agriculture. And it's essentially a design system that was developed in Australia that is seeking to understand what indigenous cultures did to be able to create these more permanent perennial agriculture systems that would not strip the nutrients out of the soils mm-hmm. um, that would allow them to not only survive but to persist and thrive over multiple generations yeah. exactly um, and so permaculture is this sort of um, modern uh, framework to reconnect with essentially indigenous ancestral knowledge systems um, and was my introduction to systems thinking through the lens of designing uh, the conscious design of integrated and regenerative food systems. Um, and so that was my introduction to sustainability, um, which led to some really fascinating work in Mongolia, as you mentioned earlier, um, which was my first experience working with communities that were already being impacted by climate change. Um, and so in Mongolia, we worked with former nomads um, because in Mongolia, talk about extreme. How did you end up there? So my teacher uh, had worked, has worked in every continent except Antarctica. Um, well, there's not a lot of people. Just not a lot of people in Antarctica, there, right? You know, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but he's he's worked doing permaculture work uh, in the context of sustainability. Um, sustainable development and food security. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a lot of his work is around sort of community-based farmer training to help communities um, do more with the resources that they have. 
Uh, and so he was hired by an NGO to go to Mongolia um, for the first time, first time that permaculture was introduced to Mongolia. And one of my classmates in the permaculture design course that I took was the director of food security for this NGO that was based in Mongolia that had hired him. So I got to go and kind of intern, basically. Um, and that was a seven-week trip. And we worked within 20 kilometers of the Siberian border in the north and then with right on the Chinese border in the south in the Gobi Desert. Um, very extreme conditions. There's no trees, very thin layers of topsoil, extreme temperatures, minus 40 in the winter before wind chill, plus 40 in the summer. Um, and so Mongolians have this really rich culture that evolved as a survival response to those mm -hmm. extreme conditions. Like those warrior looking guys. Exactly. It's very hardy people. And so their whole um, survival mechanism is a meat and milk sort of diet because when you think about it, the herds are your energy store through that mm -hmm. bitter winter. You're not going to be able to grow enough vegetables in a six, sorry, in a 90 day growing season to last you through that bitter winter. Yeah. So it, it's, uh, it's that culture and that means of subsistence and survival has evolved to be fit to the biophysical conditions of that very specific place. Right. Hmm. But the climate change impacts, um, that were displacing these folks were they're called Zuds, D-Z-U-D. Huh. And a Zud is an uncharacteristic precipitation event. Because so Mongolia is basically this high desert plain, right? Very low rainfall. Um, and so when you have a rainfall event at that altitude in those conditions, it's not rainfall, it's snow. Um, and so you have this precipitation event, a white Zud, is where you have so much snow that falls that the herds can't dig down to browse the grass underneath to and they, they die off. Yeah. Oh, okay. And a black zud happens when you have an unseasonable snowfall and then it thaws. And then it freezes, freezes over. over again. And so literally the animals can see the grass, but they can't break through the ice. Sorry. Um, and so um, literally... Uh, over a million people had moved off of the out of the the, the plains and into the capital city uh, because their traditional ways of lifestyles and livelihoods had been disrupted by climate change. Wow. Yeah, so we were going so in there. So where do they go? What do they do? They don't have jobs. I mean, most of these people are just living. Yeah, so Ulaanbaatar. Right. I mean, that's pretty much their existence. They were, but when you lose your herd you have no other means to provide for your family's needs. So you move to the urban center in search of a job so that you can earn money to then buy food that's very likely been imported. <laughs> so it's pretty intense. So we were working with rural communities that were hooing up um, and creating vegetable growing cooperatives. Uh, and they were actually, it was really fascinating. They were repurposing these old Soviet bunkers uh, these big concrete buildings, uh, and they were repurposing them into passive solar greenhouses. Wow. So you could take a 90-day growing season and you could extend it to 120 or 180 days. And in fact, I met one French NGO that had figured out how to create a, a heating system so that you could actually have year-round production 
in minus 40 degrees wow. <laughs> in your passive solar greenhouse. So was, um, that was the initial focus of the project. How long ago was that? Let's see. That would have been 2009, 2010, I think. Okay. Yeah. So, well, gosh. 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, 10 years ago. It goes years. fast, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm old. <laughs> so um, that seven-week project uh, led to an invitation from that NGO for me to go back the following year, which would have been, I guess, 2011, I think. Um, and so they looked at my background and said, oh, you have a background in finance. Can we expand this food security programming to think about creating a bioregional economic development type of plan starting at the backyard, starting at your back step? And I very naively said, sure. <laughs> um, and it's me and my buddy... Um, got together and designed a pilot and most largely because of the deep connections and relationships and understanding that he had of that place. Um, we were that in combination with some of the financial literacy um, and tools and competencies that I developed in that previous 10 years mm -hmm. of working in that sector uh, between those two complementary skills um, we surprised ourselves and created a pilot that outperformed all expectations awesome. in his hometown, which is in uh, westernmost Mongolia, which I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, The Eagle Hunter, The Eagle Huntress. No, I didn't. These people are amazing. So they literally hunt wolves with golden eagles that they capture and train from the wild wow. <laughs> on horseback. And... Um, it's a great documentary about one of the first female um, hunt eagle huntresses. Wow. Um, and there's an elder in that film that I got to spend some time with because of my buddy Beck and his relationships out there. So this was the people that we were working with. Um, and in that sector or that part of the world, uh, they are ethnically Kazakh and Mongolian. And so the Kazakhs have homes that look very much like the pueblos in New Mexico, those square earthen kind of homes. Uh, which is where they overwinter. And then in the summer, they'll go out with their herds into the plains, into the steppe and the grasslands, and then they'll come back in the winter. So you're in the middle of nowhere, and then you have this, like, urban setting. <laughs> oh. And um, we were able to help those communities start to diversify their food production into root crops and other leafy crops, hardy leafy crops, through the construction of passive solar greenhouses attached to their Pueblo-style houses in the, in the quote-unquote suburbs. They're, they're called Sums, the urban centers of Mongolia. Um, and that was a four-year project. Um, and um, I forget the metrics offhand, but they were measuring sort of the number of households uh, that were able to go from growing zero uh, zero pounds of potatoes, for example, to I think the number is over 6,000 houses. And then they were able to kind of figure out what the average household production was. You could extrapolate that out into the gross tonnage that was being produced literally in backyards. Have you um, followed up with them since? It's been almost yeah. 10 years now. No. Uh, you know, yeah, I'd love to go back. Some A lot of those gardens are still going. And I would uh, love to go back with a camera crew and do it. I've uh, almost pulled it off a couple times. It's oh, yeah. not hard to get folks to say, hey, you want to come to Mongolia with me? You know, um, One day we'll, we'll get to it, I hope. But uh, that, that pilot program 
in for the first year outperformed and exceeded really surprises exceeded all expectations and Beck was able to leverage that to get about seven times the funding to scale that project up in the capital city of Ulaanbaatar um, and so that led to the next four years of his life wow. <laughs> um, and Beck now works for the um, United Nations FAO Food and Agriculture Organization in Mongolia um, and is doing similar work at the policy scale looking at how to help households increase their food security so yeah it's kind of a yeah my 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 roots or the pathway to the university of hawaii go from hawaii to australia through mongolia (laughs) through uh, the southeast asia the south pacific and then back to here kaikendall hall (laughs) wow so let's dive into that the university what i know that this program here was started in 2015 correct yeah so um, tell me what it is today and what are you guys doing? Yeah, so I would be remiss to talk about what we're doing today without talking about what has come before because we stand on the shoulders of the amazing activists and passionate sustainability advocates that have come before us. There's at least two decades of previous work to try to get something institutional around sustainability at the University of Hawaii. Um, so in 2012, I was asked to help with some strategic planning uh, with a number of these very grizzled, very scarred, (laughs) very passionate champions who had just been trying for years and years and years to get something going here. And they're sitting around the table saying, look, why have we not been able to scale this up? Why have we not been able to get institutional resources to be able to support this very important work? Um, What could we do different? and that's where we, someone in the room said, well, what's, the, what's your policy on this? And then there's sort of crickets and we realized, oh, <laughs> we need to establish a policy on sustainability at the University of Hawaii so that the institution can recognize it as an institutional priority and then allocate resources to support it. So that process started in the end of 2012, start of 2013, and it was basically two years of stakeholder engagement and conversations with students, staff, faculty, administrators, community members from across all 10 campuses. There's literally been hundreds of people that have provided input to create EP 4.202, which is UH's Executive Sustainability Policy. And that was formalized in 2015. Uh, and that is what led to the formal establishment of the Office of Sustainability. Once the Office of Sustainability was established in 2015, then the university realized we need someone to actually implement this policy that we've taken two years to create. Um, And so that's how the first position that is my position now um, was sort of unlocked, as it were. So in 2015, it was, uh, I used to say, introduced the Office of Sustainability is we are doing this and we are doing that and it was only me (laughs) and now in uh, four years later um, we've been able to build a strong core team here at the system level as well as a distributed network of various folks that are working on different things across the campuses so um, yeah it's been a really fascinating journey working within a legacy institution um, that is attempting to do new things um, and that requires it to behave and think in different ways because of the nature of this um, 
this this work in sustainability. So, what does sustainability mean, right? Mm-hmm. Well, in the context of the University of Hawaii, <laughs> that policy spells out and articulates this is what sustainability means at the University of Hawaii. And it directs us to integrate sustainability across operations, curriculum, research, campus and community engagement, and cultural connections. So under operations, you have things like energy, water, waste, food, landscaping, all of the things that happen in the, quote, back of the house to make the campus run. And those other items are kind of refer to the front of the house activities. So what happens in the classroom? How are we teaching people about climate change, sustainability, and resilience? How are we equipping our students with the knowledge, the skills, and experience that they need to be able to navigate increasingly unstable conditions and uncertain futures that lie ahead? Uh, How are we directing our $400 million research enterprise towards helping our communities solve these same challenges that we face in Hawaii? Uh, How are we engaging our campus community and our surrounding communities that our campuses serve uh, to be able to ensure that the knowledge that's produced within these walls don't just exist here, they're actually shared and benefit the community in very direct ways and support, complement, and elevate community initiatives and community priorities. Uh, And then the cultural connections piece is really fascinating because that to me is actually the crux of it and gets to the heart of what all of this work really is and that is to shift our culture to shift our cultural consciousness to be able to interact with our world in ways that don't do damage but in fact enhance the natural systems life support systems that support us in these this sort of how do we evolve our cultural consciousness so that you know, the living and material resources that the earth provides are not viewed as an unending bank that we can constantly extract to create products to sell. Because it's not, yeah. Exactly. How do we start to evolve our consciousness so that we recognize that we're a part of these same systems and that if we damage those systems, we actually damage ourselves? Um, And what are the things that we need to be able to not even, not just do, but how what are the different ways that we need to be yeah. so that we can do differently so that we can have different outcomes and live in a more think, harmonious yeah. yeah exactly so that's a kind of um i hope that's not too abstract that's a kind of broad sweep of what the um sustainability office is focused on and you can literally look up the policy and it, it goes into much more specificity, but that's our overriding directive. So do you have majors and degrees and, you know, graduate level, like things that you can, like someone could go like, hey, you know what, University of Hawaii has a department of sustainability and they have these degrees, I'm going to apply here. What kind of um, programs do you guys have? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and we've actually just recently... Uh, updated our website at hawaii.edu forward slash sustainability where okay. you can actually find all this information. I will put that on top of the uh, end info. Excellent. And one of the distinctions that you'll find when you visit the site, you can look under education, what our offerings and programs are. Um, we, we distinguish between sustainability-related courses and content and sustainability-focused. So there is an awful lot of really world-class programming 
regarding sustainability related topics. So for example, we have a school of ocean earth science and technology Mm -hmm. um, and they are doing incredible work to enhance and deepen our understanding of um, our planet's systems, right? Um, Which I would describe as sustainability related. Mm -hmm. Why I would describe that as sustainability related is because in the current context, uh, the leading edge of thought on this is reconceiving sustainability as its own integrated concept and discipline that requires its own very specific set of competencies to be able to integrate skills across from different disciplines to be able to solve the complex challenges that we face. So you think about the challenges of climate change, for example. Those challenges don't care what discipline that you're in. In fact, those challenges demand that you draw from any and all appropriate and helpful sources and houses of knowledge. And so the sustainability practitioner needs to be equipped with different competencies to be able to synthesize um, all of this uh, copious amounts of available information um, and to be able to strategize Mm -hmm. uh, potential solutions uh, in a systemic and structural way. And to be fluid with that because our context is changing so quickly, you have to be constantly evolving your approach. So there's very specific competencies that a sustainability practitioner needs. Systems thinking, strategic thinking, futures thinking, collaborative competencies, so the ability to be able to work well with others and work outside of your discipline, um, and to foster and forge and cultivate unlikely partnerships. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then, of course, the competency and the ability to integrate all of those previous competencies. So you're telling me you're producing people like this? That's amazing. <laughs> Good job. Bob. We are working towards that. So, <laughs> it sounds uh, like a very um, difficult... <laughs> yeah. Okay. It is. And there are... So we have a number of sustainability-related programs, certificates, undergraduate, graduate, postgraduate programs, and those exist across many of our departments. The sustainability focus piece... Uh, there are a number of sustainability-focused courses that are offered at each of our campuses. Um, and these are equipped uh, or designed to be able, especially in your first and second years of college, to introduce you and equip you with a baseline of sustainability like literacy. Like 101. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Sustainability 101. Yeah, exactly. So that's just at the course level. Then the next uh, level up from that is we have three bachelor's programs that are looking at sustainability Focus. They have an explicit focus on what I was talking about earlier, equipping students to, with the competencies necessary for them to become sustainability practitioners, so systems thinking, so on and so forth. Um, one so of these, th- are, these are the position, I mean, I guess they would end up as a position um, for a company, whether they're consulting on sustainability for that, that firm or that company, or they are, are becoming their director of sustainability. It certainly set you up for that trajectory, yeah. Um, One of those programs is specifically focused on creating practitioners that are equipped to enact systemic and structural change in food systems. So Mm. that's our Sustainable Community Food Systems program offered at West Oahu. UH Maui College offers a bachelor's in sustainable science management, and that's a more general one. So how do you equip a student to graduate with systems thinking competencies so that they could work in public sector or private sector 
uh, and help organizations to integrate sustainability across their functional areas, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then Manoa has a sustainability studies program right now, which is actually being revamped and strengthened and fortified. Um, and is essentially, as I understand it, looking to create practitioners that have that same ability um, to be able to think systemically and have that sort of integrative synthesis. Um, and that sort of sets the stage for additional programs that build upon that bachelor's levels to, to graduate and postgraduate studies that are, again, specifically focused on sustainability as an integrated discipline and concept. Now, compared to the rest of the states, where do we lie with what we're doing? Are we progressive? Are we um, behind? Regarding education? Yeah, or? education and sustainability. Like doing sure. what you're doing, like our other universities doing something very similar. They've been doing it for a while. Just out of curiosity. Yeah. Like would this draw more people to the University of Hawaii in Hawaii um, from other other states or countries for that matter. Yeah, so I mean, we're already getting global attention for That's awesome. many of the existing programs that we have and the new programs that Samuel Community Food Systems program in particular is really attracting a lot of acclaim both nationally and internationally. And I will say that's because that program does a particularly good job of being able to help our Western institution recognize other knowledge systems that don't come from that same genealogy. It's more specifically, the house of knowledge that is Ike Hawaii, Ike Kupuna, Hawaiian indigenous ancestral knowledge. So if you think about um, the, the university having been here, you know, since the 19th century, so less than 200 years, right? Um, and if you think about the house of knowledge of Hawaiian indigenous ancestral knowledge systems, that's at least a bank of at least a thousand years of really detailed empirical observation that is recorded and handed down and built upon over multiple generations mm -hmm. and encoded in the cultural practices, cultural practices in the chants, in the dance, in the mele um, that gives Native Hawaiians really deep and specific and nuanced understandings of our biophysical life support systems here. Um, and the SCFS program in particular does a really good job of exploring that meeting of wisdoms um, and equipping students to be able to be fluent in both of those and fluid uh, so that they can synthesize those and start to solve all of this complexity that we're facing in food systems, right? Today, yeah. yeah. Our food systems definitely need to evolve if we're to be equipped to, um, to survive uh, what the science tells us about how climate change is anticipated to impact their future. Um, so, you know, I, my perspective is we always have more work to do. Um, and as a practitioner on the inside, I can always see the gaps that, uh, that we can continue to strive for and stretch for. And so I need to be careful to also remind ourselves of how far we actually have come and mm -hmm. what incredible things that we're already doing. So I think that both is true. We are leading in many ways, and, and we are also uh, able to learn um, from a lot of other programs that mm -hmm. are out there um, so that we can collectively elevate our game for the sake of, of humanity, you know? Well, I'm going to switch gears to uh, move more into Hawaii Green Growth Initiative. 
I know that you have been on board with them from the start, if I'm not mistaken. Could you tell us a little bit more about their um, their task force or their platform? Sure. So um, Hawaii Green Growth is a non-governmental organization. It started actually as an informal network um, on the heels of APEC, uh, which was, when was APEC? 2011, 2012? Has it been that long? That's the roots of it. And the the roots of uh, HGG, Hawaii Green Growth, go even deeper to that and trace themselves to the Malama Hawaii movement, um, which arguably starts uh, in 1976 or something with the speech that Senator Kenny Brown delivers at the floor of the Hawaii State Legislature entitled Malama Hawaii, calling for our state leadership and governance to to evolve its decision making in ways such that we are ensuring we are malamaing this place. We are taking care of Hawaii and its resources first and foremost. Um, APEC, as you know, was this big sort of economic development forum. And on the margins of APEC, um, a group of really committed um, sustainability practitioners uh, wanted to make sure that the conservation and the protection of our biocultural resources did not get lost in this conversation around economic development as it so often does. Mm -hmm. And so that's where they start to organize informally around this common cause, this common focus, right? Um, So the roots of HGG actually come from the conservation community, which is really fascinating. Um, And again, starts as this informal network um, and is, these conversations are really stewarded by a woman by the name of Audrey Newman, who still lives in Molokai at this time, but has worked. Her, she spent her career working in the Pacific region, mostly outside of Hawaii, helping communities to organize similarly to protect their own biocultural resources. Um, and so HGG evolves to become this informal network of organizations that are really focused on this. Um, and continues to evolve sort of according to uh, the need that this informal network is able to identify. One of the needs they identify early is similar to the UH context. You need some type of policy, institutional commitment. You need a signal from the executive branch of leadership. And that was not in place, right? That There was a Hawaii 2050 plan that happened um, in the first 10 years of this century, mm-hmm. between 2000 2008, leading up to the Hawaii Clean Energy Act that was passed in 2008. Um, and uh, the Hawaii 2050 plan convened hundreds of stakeholders and community meetings across the state. It took a couple of years to put together, I'm took sure. took a few years to put together. Then was synthesized all of that feedback was synthesized into this really thick report it's 100 pages i looked at it that's right. what started me on this there you movie. go <laughs> yeah i was like what is this 2050? 2050 plan that report unfortunately largely sat on the shelf so um part of hgg's origin story comes to the university of hawaii we have a master's student in our DERP program, the Department of Urban and Regional Planning. Her name is Jackie Kozak-Teal. Jackie uh, asks the question, her master's thesis is, whatever happened to the Hawaii 2050 plan? (laughs) And so as she's studying this and she's 
researching and she's meeting with department heads and heads of agencies and trying to understand how come this was never meaningfully implemented, she starts to hear these common pattern of we are all in, we're all behind this, we want to do this, but we lack the capacity to be able to organize outside of what our unit is already tasked to do. Exactly. And so Jackie presents her thesis at the... Um, the governor, then Governor Abercrombie, uh, his wife, happens to uh, meet Jackie and gets very interested in this work. And well, she, how, what year about was this? Oh, let's see. It's two administrations ago, right? So yeah. that has to be maybe 2012-ish. Okay. 2012, 2013, I think. And I'm saying the same thing. In 20... <laughs> okay, keep going. Yeah, yeah. Keep going. Oh, great minds think alike, right? So... Um, uh, that long story short, um, governor's wife uh, sees Jackie's thesis presentation, and they create the state's first sustainability coordinator position out of that. And said, "Hey, Jackie, you've done all this research. You've identified these gaps. Can you help us to close some of these gaps? Here's a we're going to create this position to provide additional capacity to coordinate and convene across these organizational silos." So Jackie and Audrey connect, um, and those are, it's a very um, synergistic meeting. And now we have an actor at the state level that's empowered to be able to work across the state organization silos. And then you also have So someone, who is that position now? Uh, that position is now in the, I believe it's held in the Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism. And it is another DERP alum, I, I believe. She has a planning background. Her name is Danielle Bass. She's okay. the state sustainability coordinator. Jackie's now the director of sustainability for Fort Collins in Colorado. Wow. Yeah. Okay. You know, she, she had a baby and her family's from there, and so they moved back there. Um, but as this uh, coalition now starts to have these connections with formalized state positions, and we're able to start to expand that coalition, this is where my involvement comes into the picture. Um, and I'm asked to help with the group design process because I'm sure that you or your listeners have never been in a meeting where it's felt like, oh my gosh, can I just poke my eyeballs out? Because this meeting is like really demoralizing, death by meeting, right? Um, so how do you have a productive conversation with a large group of diverse stakeholders that actually moves the dialogue forward and is productive and results in concrete action steps, right? To, that, that can actually help everybody. Mm-hmm. So that was what I was asked to help with. <laughs> and that led to an ongoing engagement and eventually a board, uh, a, a, an invitation to serve on the board to help provide, the, like institutionalize that perspective and competency skill set on the HGG board itself. Um, and the network identifies that, huh, okay, so first we need this institutional commitment. And so that is the Aloha Plus Challenge. And that's a resolution that is introduced by then-Senator Ige, that is unanimously passed by the House and Senate, and that is unanimously endorsed by all county mayors, the governor, and the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. So that's why when you go to Hawaii Green Girls' website, you'll see all of the city and county logos and all of the state logos up there that's supporting. Yeah. yeah, and so it's the... <clears throat> so... What is the Aloha Plus Challenge? The Aloha Plus Challenge is that 
joint commitment across our political spectrum in Hawaii, which is very unique to Hawaii and which has garnered and given us a lot of global attention. Because, for example, in Arizona, can't say the words climate change in their state legislature. What? They, they don't, they are unwilling to accept. accept the science. So we are miles ahead of many other states in that regards. Our science understands, or excuse me, our leadership understands and accepts this, what the science tells us and is taking meaningful action on it. I think some places see the effects uh, much more quickly than others. Especially islands, yeah, right? Right, so, yeah, we, yeah, We have communities <laughs> uh, that are already feeling You can visually the see the, what's going on, then you're like, oh, start to think twice about... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the flooding in Kauai last year is a really good example of that. That is directly attributed attributable to climate change um the amount of sheer amount of storms that we experience and that only miss hawaii by sheer chance right Mm -hmm. um so that's what the first so the analogy to the uh policy and the aloha plus is similar right it's Mm -hmm. expressed in a different context right well the aloha plus challenge that that's that's the one that also regulate or shows our progress too, right? So that's the next component of it, which is the dashboard. That you're the dashboard, about. right? But first and foremost, it's this joint political commitment that articulates, hey, when we're talking about our commitment to our island sustainability, we're talking about these six areas. Yeah. Clean energy. Let's see if I can remember them. Clean energy, waste reduction, natural resource management, smart, sustainable communities, green food. workforce yeah. and education, and local food. Thank you. Um, and so now the question is, well, how do you measure progress on that and so my uh, role at hcg over the last three years has been serving as the co-chair for the sustainability measures process oh so much fun <laughs> for <laughs> weirdos like you me, would yes. have to be doing things measurable for each one of those very differently <laughs> yes exactly and and for sustainability to have any meaning because it can be such a nebulous term it needs to be uh, tied to clear targets, goals, and metrics. So what are those targets, goals, and metrics? Well, you need to be really careful here. What are the things that matter that we should be measuring, right? Mm-hmm. And also, like, recognizing that some things that matter can't easily be measured. Like, how do you measure a uh, sense of place? Yeah. I don't know that that lends itself to a dashboard metric, but it's very important. It has come up often enough in all of our conversations to develop the dashboard. Well, I mean, just alone when I think of that is when the keiki, the kids don't have the perception of, hey, don't litter. Like they don't, they have no cognizant that is actually bad for the environment and nobody's taught them these type of things. I don't know how you measure that. <laughs> how do you, you exactly. know, it's, good it's point. Yeah. yeah. It, but once they learn, then they gravitate to, oh, I'm taking care of my land. They don't, I don't know how you would. Well, that goes to like what we were talking about earlier about the cultural connections and how do you shift culture? Just so that's the way of, that's how you, how do, you things. do things. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, for institutions and for agencies within those institutions, they need clear signals from leadership and they also need to know what those target goals are so that they can make their plans to implement and advance progress on those target goals and metrics. So the next component from the Aloha Plus challenge, that joint political commitment, is 
a dashboard which offers now a mechanism to start to track progress on that. But before you can start to track progress, you have to start asking the question, what are the things that matter that we should be measuring? And So is transportation on there or transportation like fuel? Uh, yes, and I'm... I think that comes under... Um, Possibly energy, maybe? I think I it's know. actually energy and smart, sustainable communities. I think so, because those six targets are interrelated, right? So yeah. this was something that constantly came up. Well, shouldn't this be here? And this is... Well, you're probably right. A lot of these things could be in multiple components, mm-hmm. but uh, separating it into six sort of specific focus areas is useful because it starts to give you a framework to be able to start to make sense of this. So I will say that the joint political commitment and the dashboard has set Hawaii apart from the rest of the world, especially as the world is now grappling with how do we implement this global sustainable development agenda of the 17 global SDGs, sustainable development goals that 195 countries signed on to uh, also in 2015. What a monumentous year that was. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we are being recognized as by the United Nations at a global level as leading on this. So how many, I guess, people have signed or cities or states have signed that 2030 Local 2030 the local hub. 2030 hub. Yeah. So the local 2030 hub is not so much, it's not a joint commitment in the way the Aloha Plus challenge mm-hmm. is. That was more recognition by the United Nations Secretary General that, hey, Hawaii, you're doing some really incredible things that the rest of the world can learn from here. And so we really see you as a hub for helping other communities in their language implement the global SDGs. Mm-hmm. Now I want to make clear that we didn't come up with the Aloha Plus challenge or the dashboard to try to implement the global SDGs. We came up with those to try to solve for our own context and our own challenges, specifically to ensure that the protection, conservation, and management of our biocultural resources was not lost at the expense of these conversations around economic development Mm -hmm. on the heels of APEC, right? Um, So we were literally scratching our own itch. We're trying to solve for our own complex challenges that we're facing in our own backyard and that has given us this global attention now what exactly is the 2030 hub are there certain things that we need to meet by then or what is the 2030 so the 2030 uh, the, the 2030 is um significant because that's the time frame for the global sdgs oh okay so that's the reference there and oh, okay. that's the connect there now do we have certain uh things to meet by this these dates too? so hawaii there's an interesting measure in the legislature right now that is proposing that hawaii adopt the global sdg framework that'll be interesting to see so that's in session right now. It's in session right now. Um, I'm unclear as to uh, a what its current status is, b how that may or may not be useful for us to help bring additional resources and capacity and mm-hmm. to solve our local challenges that we're facing. Um, so it remains to be seen, but it's interesting that it is being considered guess, at yeah. the legislature. Um, I think that the other thing that risks getting lost with all of this increased attention we're getting from the global community around the dashboard specifically and the joint political commitment is the 90% of the process that the the, the 90% of activities that don't make it that aren't that visible 
that actually created the dashboard and that commitment. All of these partner meetings and these deep conversations and these group processes that we co-designed to be able to have productive conversations, those produce those two very tangible things that get all of the attention. Mm -hmm. But it's those things that we were doing that actually yielded those things that give us the attention. So the dashboard, while it's a great start, it is just the beginning. Exactly. And in order for it to continue to be useful for us and it and needs it has to, continue to continue to evolve yeah. exactly and we need to continue to ask that question those questions what are we not tracking yes. what do we need to track better exactly are we measuring what matters mm-hmm. does the existing dashboard measure the things that are truly going to help us to advance progress in the things that truly matter mm-hmm. and even looking at the existing dashboard uh and as vested as I am with all the time, all of my life energy that I've put into that thing, I can see clear weaknesses to it um, and areas where it could be significantly improved. Um, so I, my perspective on the dashboard is a great start and has enormous potential to help us even further. Um, if it is, if it continues to evolve and iterate and it continues to engage our local community in ways that help our local community solve the challenges that they face in their own backyard. How often do you guys get together? Yeah, guys we're actually... Uh, so that varies according to a number of different factors. We had some funding deadlines to get the dashboard completed last year. And so obviously <laughs> the pace and frequency of the meetings, yeah. especially leading up to the deadline, kind of increased. Um, and since then... Uh, We've been in a bit of a a hold reassessing sort of pattern. Um, So we're actually just uh, getting ready to convene the core steering group um, in a couple weeks um, where we're going to ask those questions. How, How are people using this? What value are you getting from it? What areas for improvement can you see? Are we measuring the things that matter? You know, are there things that we're measuring on here that aren't helpful? Are there things that we should be measuring that we're not already? Mm-hmm. So on and so forth. So Audrey used a really helpful phrase as we were going about the creation of the dashboard. She said, this is kind of like a song sung in rounds, you know, like row, row, row your boat. <laughs> and every time we do another verse, there's more voices that chime in. And so it gets richer and more nuanced and also more messy sometimes right? and more challenging. Yeah. Um, but it's been a really useful analogy because she's right. We do have to keep singing this song and asking these questions and continuing to evolve and iterate and adapt this so that it can be fit to our context and continue to be useful and valuable. Awesome. Well, now that we tackled that one, um, a little bit, just a brief, brief, because I do want to give a shout out to, uh, the farm that you support. So can you tell us a little bit about we're going to be moving into farming and agriculture and I guess where things have been headed in that direction. So maybe more on like the smaller sectors um, versus uh, big farming, right? Um, big ag. So Kahumana Farms um, Board of Directors President is here. This is Matt. And can you enlighten us a little bit on what they're doing as their progressive farm evolves? Sure. Well, they they asked if I would serve in that capacity, (laughs) Um, which my wife was um, 
unsure that I had the bandwidth to be able to take on. Do you have on. any kids? No. Okay. Maybe no. No she's going to cut you. Okay. Well, your kids will be Hawaii and, <laughs> well, and your dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I told her, look, uh, this means that we get to spend more time at the farm. She said, oh, okay, great. <laughs> what a great idea. Um, I was asked to join the board to help um, support the farm. Uh, and this was a few years ago. Kahumana Organic Farm is actually fascinating because um, that is one of a handful of enterprises that that community is actually engaged with. And so um, Kahumana fits under the umbrella of our nonprofit Alternative Structures International. Uh, and that was founded back in the 70s as an intentional community uh, that was really focused on serving Hawaii's most vulnerable. And so since its inception, Kahumana has been looking and seeking to provide services for mentally ill, for the developmentally disabled, for the homeless or houseless community. Um, and one of their core tenets or core beliefs is that providing access to health, fresh organic food is key to and fundamental to human health. Um, and if you're choosing to serve these vulnerable populations, giving them access to health, freshy, fr healthy, fresh, organic food is key, right? Um, so that's the roots of the farm itself. And Alternative Structures International in its current version uh, has at least six interconnected enterprises mm -hmm. that are all really focused on social justice and equity issues. Um, so we provide... Um, developmental disability support services, essentially adult daycare. Adults, yeah, mostly yeah, with the adults. Exactly, on-site at mm -hmm. the farm in uh, Luolulue Valley in Waianae. We also provide in-home services to patients across the island. So we have services island-wide on Oahu. Uh, we also run a community kitchen that pumps out, I think, more than 1,300 meals a week, um, wow. all for um, children who qualify for low-income uh, meal coupons. Um, and so, are so, they? Are you distributing across the island, or just more in the community? That's focused uh, to serving West Oahu okay. and Waianae. Um, and the person that manages that enterprise was a former client in our transitional housing program. So she was homeless and she through went through our programming program. she was able to basically build the skill sets stabilize and build skill sets where she could manage uh i mean a really significant enterprise mm -hmm. um, and so she has a huge heart and what she's really focused on serving that community and especially the keiki right um the other thing the other enterprise that we're engaged with is providing transitional housing services so transitional housing services, many families in Hawaii are one or two paychecks away from literally being out on the street. So transitional housing is designed for folks that have come upon hard times to be able to give them a safe place to stabilize, get back up on their feet and get back out into the marketplace to be able to um, earn an income and, and provide for their own housing. Um, so we actually have... Um, 40 some more than 40 units adjacent to the farm that is a transitional housing program oh um, really i didn't know that yeah yeah it's it's deceptive when you visit the farm How, what what other things that we're engaged with and then the farm and the cafe the farm to table cafe uh and our farm retreat center um are kind of 
those social enterprises are really designed to support those other social justice enterprises. Like the business side to exactly. income. Exactly, exactly. And the farm is really the heart and soul of that intentional community because the farm workers actually live on site and part of their compensation is in kind in the form of housing and the meals that it, so they, they eat fresh, healthy, organic produce that they've grown themselves. The, the cafe, in addition to serving the public, also feeds the farm community, also provides uh, healthy farm-to-table meals to the adults that we serve in the adult daycare for the developmentally disabled on site each day. Um, and so it's a wonderfully, it's a wonderful ecosystem of enterprises that are interconnected. Um, How long have you been with them? Gosh, uh, at least three years, maybe a little longer. And when I started, the farm was uh, hurting financially. Um, and so... When did they acquire that extra land? Not so long ago, right? Yeah, so you're talking about the Kuvale parcel. Someone donated. Yes, one of our previous patients passed away and they left a parcel of land to us, uh, which has helped us to expand our farm operations. So I should know these numbers. It's, I want to say 12 or 14 acres. Yeah, which um, needs to be all the brush cleaned up and able to farm so... You're now, I like the concept of what you're doing. So you're now, I guess they're selling almost like you would buy or purchase kind of like a donation to a tree, right? You can, you can name a tree. Name a tree, right? It's like your tree in a sense. A legacy tree for, you know, in, in honor of someone or whatnot. So the production systems that the farm employs, and I, and I, well, let me finish the thought from earlier. So when I joined, the farm was losing money and was in trouble and they brought me on to help support that Um, and it's not I can't take credit for turning the farm around all of the credit for turning the farm around goes to Christian Zuckerman the farm manager who actually was born and raised out well born in Austria but raised in Waianae at Kahumana (laughs) Um, and came home to help save the farm essentially and now runs it and has turned it around uh, and brought it from a financial deficit to a financial surplus and awesome they produce over 80,000 pounds of food a year I think this year we're on track to grow more than a hundred thousand pounds of uh, organic organic certified food in addition to about the same amount again another hundred thousand of produce that is grown in the community literally in backyards that we are able to pay the uncles and aunties for through our farm hub activities, um, which we then use to supply um, our distribution chain network of restaurants and um, grocery stores and whatnot. So the production systems that Kahumana employs uh, are, we like to think of them in terms of regenerative. So we grow a lot of our fertility on site rather than importing fertilizer. Uh, we also grow a lot of our own pest management inputs on site. Neem trees are an enormously effective pesticide, completely natural, homegrown. Uh, we grow those trees on site. They manufacture the spray applications right on site using neem. Um, and we're able to reduce the other um, pest management inputs that farms would typically need to, to bring in. And then the other piece is that we're... Um, 
polyculture orchard um, where we have planted polyculture meaning not a monoculture so more than one species a, a biodiverse orchard where we have Christian will run you through all the different types of citrus that's been planted out and all the different types of avocados and mangoes and breadfruit um, and obviously though you know tree crops take longer before yeah. they bear full production so while those are being planted now um, our revenues come in from the annual crops the carrots the radishes the lettuce the, greens, the salad mixes yeah. So for some of you who don't know, when we were there, they had a big chart of all of the uh, farm-to-table type of restaurants that we all love and go to. So just a few of them that I was, I'll was i read off is like the Eating House, Roy's, Monkey Pod, High Blend, um, Fish House, Juicy Brew, Down to Earth, Plantation Tavern, Coco, Coco Head? No. Mm-hmm. Coco Head Cafe. Yeah, Coco Head Cafe. <clears throat> the Street, Nook. I mean, there was like a lot. You're just like, wow. Those are all the places you love to eat. At. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. it, it tastes so good because it's, it's fresh. It's organic. So it's good to see that um, this this is, you know, definitely support them for sure. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the shout out. Yeah, it's, and if you ever get a chance to go and visit the farm tour, I know you got to do the farm tour. How was that for you? That was awesome. And we took our daughter. She's nine years old. She loved it. Um, some of it's a great thing to do with your family Um, and I think they do have different options or different types of where you can go and then eat as well and it's like you know for the price and what you're going to get and the education you get and the fun that you have with your kids I'll def I definitely recommend it it is a drive out there but it'll be it's a nice drive yeah Yeah. (laughs) Um, but they have they also have volunteer opportunities well I think on Wednesdays they said but you should definitely check them out if you're just looking for something you know fun to do with your family and they have animals too so they've got the chickens that you can see and they're um they've also have like pigs and sheep now yeah chickens pigs sheep we have ducks um yeah yeah we have a um farm dog that's more like a horse <laughs> I don't know if you got to meet him he no, did, I he's, did. he's a lot of fun <laughs> oh yeah we did meet a dog I do remember meeting a dog <laughs> big old ridgeback and shameless plug my wife plays music out there every third Thursday so she's driving out this afternoon oh awesome <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, may not be a Thursday when you listen to this <laughs> well, keep that in mind yeah so I think we've gone over an hour, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to wrap this up and maybe have to have you come on again on some other topics. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. I um, haven't really tackled everything. Um, anyhow, so thank you, Matt. Thank you for joining me, taking uh, an hour out of your time for this, and that's all I have for you today. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast at www.smartlivinghi.com. Also, follow us on Instagram at at smart underscore living underscore Hawaii and like us on Facebook. Mahalo until next time, live smart.